Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. A story this week on the CNN website immediately caught my attention, and you can understand why in a moment. The article was titled, For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal. Now, you're not going to believe this. The story begins, 13-year-old April Joy had a sense something wasn't right. It was quiet in her Dallas house, too quiet. Her brothers were gone, her parents were gone. On her parents' bed, a pile of her mother's clothes signaled something terrifying. A Joy's mind began churning, trying to remember, trying to make plans. When was the last time she had sinned? Should she refuse the mark of the beast? At least she thought if she was put to the guillotine during the time of the tribulation, it would be a quick death. April Joy grew up in an evangelical church, surrounded by constant reminders that the rapture was just around the corner. She was taught to never sin, since it could be the very last thing she did before Jesus returned to the earth. Dramatic rapture-themed books and movies were presented as real glimpses into the end of the world. Now 34, she is one of a growing network of ex-vangelicals who have removed themselves from what they now view as damaging beliefs of some evangelical churches. She runs a popular TikTok account discussing faith and, among other things, the effects of traumatic religious experiences that can last for years, even a lifetime. Rapture anxiety, as it's often called, is recognized by some faith experts and mental health professionals as a type of religious trauma. Darren Slade, the president of Global Research, has been studying a religious traumas across several faiths and denominations for years. He says, this is a real thing. It's a chronic problem. This is a new area of study, but in general, our research has revealed that religious trauma leads to an increase of anxiety, depression, paranoia, and even some OCD-like behaviors. I need to say this prayer of salvation so many times. I need to confess my sin so often. Now imagine, he continues, you are taught that at any minute you could be left on earth. What does that do to a teenager who just had premarital sex or even simply took the Lord's name in vain? The article says, experience like this young woman's, a latent fear of impending inevitable end are very common among communities of religious trauma survivors. And on and on it goes. I've just got one question. If simply hearing about the rapture can be traumatic, what do you think it's going to be like for these people when they actually live through the rapture and find out they've been left behind? I mean, that's the ultimate trauma, isn't it? And yet, that article highlights a basic truth, and that is 
Differing people have different reactions to the end times. For those who do know Jesus as their Savior, the end-time events are nothing to worry about. They represent simply a prelude to an eternity of eternal blessing. But for those who don't believe in Jesus as their Savior, they're obviously frightened by the end time because if these events are true, they are a prelude to an eternity of suffering. Today, as we come to the end of our series, What Every Christian Should Know, I thought it was appropriate that we look at the 10th historic pillar of the Christian faith, and that is what every Christian should know about the end times. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 24 for a moment. Remember, Jesus uh, had no difficulty talking about the end times, no matter how traumatic it was for his listeners. Remember, his disciples in Matthew 24 were walking with him out of the temple, and Jesus said, oh, by the way, this whole thing's going to be torn down one day. <laughs> they were frightened. They said, what do you mean it's going to be torn down? When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus didn't respond, well, it's none of your business. Or don't worry about the future, just worry about the here and now. Instead, Jesus gave them a very detailed outline of the end time events. God wants us to understand, no, not the exact hour or day, no man knows that, but he wants us to know what we can anticipate in the future. Why is it so important to know about the end times? Let me just mention three reasons. First of all, the end times are a major theme throughout the Bible. Did you know there are 1,800 references in the Old Testament to the second coming of Jesus? For every one prophecy in the Old Testament about his first coming, there are eight about his second coming. In the New Testament, you have 300 references to the second coming. 23 out of the 27 books in the New Testament talk about Christ's return. If it's such an important topic in the Bible, it should be a subject of our understanding as well. Secondly, understanding the end times helps us interpret and apply the Bible. I'm convinced it is impossible to truly understand the Bible and apply it if you don't understand the end times. Let me give you two examples of that. Let's just say you're reading through the book of Isaiah in your daily Bible readings, and you get to Isaiah 65, verse 20. It says, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will thought to be accursed. You wonder, well, when is Isaiah talking about here? Obviously, this isn't now. Infant death happens all the time, and very few people ever even reach the age of 100. So it can't be now. It can't be heaven because people won't die at all at age 100 or the age 100,000 in heaven. So when is he talking about? Unless you understand the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ that we'll talk about in a moment, a time when a partial renovation of the earth is taking place, you'll never understand Isaiah 65, 20. Or Matthew 25 is a part of Jesus' description of the end times. He said, uh, and the king will say to them, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you vis visited me. 
And they will say to him, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry or in prison? Matthew 25, 40, and the king will answer to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these, you did it to me. And people read that and they think, well, then Jesus is saying our mission here is to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and visit those in prison. Is that what he's talking about here? After all, he said, after that, come enter my kingdom that I've prepared for you. So is the way to get to heaven, to visit the imprisoned, to clothe the naked and feed the hungry? You'll come out with all kind of wrong applications until you understand, again, the context of this passage. Jesus was talking about a future time at the end of the tribulation when he returns to judge, and he is going to judge people who were living during the tribulation by how they treated the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, the evangelists who did suffer, who did go to prison, who were hungry, who were deprived of the basics of life. And what Jesus was saying, the judgment of those in the tribulation will be how they treated those who were suffering for the Lord. It will represent how they viewed Jesus himself. To the extent you did it to the least of these, these 144,000 Jews, you did it unto me. My simple point is you can't understand passages of the Bible without having an understanding of Bible prophecy. And thirdly, anticipating the end, end times motivates us to live in a God-honoring way. Have you ever heard people say, oh, I don't study the book of Revelation or prophecy? That has no relationship to my life today wrong. Listen to what the apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3, after he had described the destruction of this present world at the end of time. He said, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godlessness, godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. In other words, if everything in this world you see right now is going to be burned up one day, shouldn't that affect right now the focus of your life, what you're investing in, what you're giving attention to? If there really is a time that I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of my life, shouldn't that impact the choices that I make right now? Abraham Lincoln said in 1858, if you will tell me where we are and where we are going... I can better tell you what to do and how to do it. We need to know what awaits us to make decisions right now that are wise. Well, if we're to understand the end time events, what are we supposed to understand? Well, I've got about 25 minutes left, and I'm going to try to summarize all of Bible prophecy in 25 minutes, what you need to know about the end times. So take your pens, get your outlines, Write down as quickly as you can, and as one of our members said, I'm going to go back and watch this again on YouTube. You can watch it later on YouTube as well. But even though we can't know the timing, here are the events we're to understand. I put on your outline the familiar uh, chart of the end time events. Now, for some of you, this is going to be brand new material. For many of you, it's review. So even if you've heard this a thousand times, think about 
would you be able to explain this to your children or grandchildren or a friend who asked you about the end times? Listen to this with a mind of how to explain this truth to others. Right now, we are living in a period of time we call the church age. Here's the definition. The church age is that period of time between Pentecost until the rapture, during which Gentiles are invited to participate in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham. We're going to look at it starting next week in our series on Abraham. It was a promise to Abraham and his believing descendants, the Jewish people who believed. But as we know, the Jewish people rejected the Messiah, the ultimate expression of the Abrahamic covenant. And so what did God do? Did he just write off the Gentile, or the Jews and say, you're lost forever? No. He temporarily stopped his dealings with Israel to give Gentiles, people like you and me, an opportunity to be saved. And that's the period of time we're living in right now. In Romans 11, verse 1, Paul, a Jew himself, said, has God rejected his people? May it never be. God's not going to violate his promise. He hasn't rejected them, but here's what has happened. Verse 25 of Romans 11, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning this mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has hit the pause button in his dealing with Israel, and their rejection means you and I, who are Gentiles, have an, have an opportunity to be saved. But God will finish his dealings with Israel. He will give them one last opportunity to trust in Christ during a period of time we'll talk about in a moment. But that's the age that we're living in right now, the church age when Gentiles are invited to participate in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when the last Gentile has been saved, who is going to be saved, that marks the end of the church age and points to the next event, the rapture of the church. The end of the church age will be the rapture of the church. What is the rapture? It's the snatching away to heaven of all Christians before the beginning of the tribulation. It's the snatching away of all Christians to heaven before the beginning of the tribulation. The key passage in Scripture for the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. I was at the cemetery yesterday doing a service on the rapture day. Those uh, uh, graves are going to be opened and all believers' bodies will be snatched up. And those of us who are alive at that time will be snatched up as well to meet the Lord in the air. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, people who don't believe in the rapture, Christians, they say, oh, that's just something that was made up in the 1800s. There's no word in the Bible that talks about a rapture. Yes, there is. It's right here. It's translated caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo. It means to snatch away. Uh, Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 12 when he said he was snatched up into the third heaven for a brief period of time. It is uh, a biblical term. 
And although there's some similarities to the rapture between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus that happened seven years later, there's also some distinct differences that we will look at as well. Just because things are similar doesn't mean they're the same. My car has a motor, an engine in it. Our washing machine has a motor in it, but they're not the same thing. I can't wash clothes in my automobile. They're similar, but they're also vastly different. And we'll see in a moment, there are some key differences between the rapture and the second coming. By the way, the rapture is the next event on God's prophetic timeline, it could happen at any moment. There are no prophecies that have to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. It could happen uh, before this sermon is over and you'd be caught up and the rest of you would be left here with me to go through the tribulation of the rest of my <laughs> sermon. But no, 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 I digress. Now, there's some different views about the rapture. Some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. They think it's gonna happen before the tribulation. That is my belief, and I'll tell you why in a moment. There are others believe in a post-tribulation rapture. That is, Christians will go through the tribulation and at the end of the tribulation, almost concurrent with the second coming of Christ. At the end of the tribulation, they'll be snatched away and they'll come back again with Christ. Or the mid-tribulation rapture, that it occurs after the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, after the rapture will come the next event, the third event, the tribulation. Here's a definition. The tribulation is the seven-year period that begins with the Antichrist when he signs a peace covenant with Israel and ends with Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible defines it as a seven-year period of time. Now, this isn't the Word of God. This is the Word of Robert. But Amy and I were speculating last night about what the rapture is going to leave behind and how will the disappearance of millions of Christians around the world be explained. My belief is the rapture will coincide with some great global holocaust, some great global tragedy that will be used to explain the disappearance of millions of people. And at the same time, that global catastrophe will serve as a catalyst for the rise, immediate rise to power of the Antichrist. Right now, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, the Antichrist hasn't been revealed. But when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, living in Christians is removed from the earth, then he will be revealed. The world will be in such turmoil, I believe, that countries like the United States of America and others will gladly surrender their constitution in order to follow the lead of this world dictator who promises peace and order out of chaos. I think that's what you're going to see. Otherwise, there's no way to understand how the Bible says he will rise to power without any show of force at all. People will applaud his rule. That's the tribulation. It's a seven-year period beginning when this great world leader signs a peace treaty with Israel and it ends with the second coming. What is the purpose of the tribulation? It's twofold. First of all, the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. Even though those who become Christians will pay a great price to do so. There's going to be a worldwide revival. And it's described in Revelation chapter 7. John says he saw people from all nations coming to faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. Verse 9 says they will come from every nation. 
This is God giving Israel and others one last chance to be saved. This final seven years is called Daniel's 70th week that he prophesied um, over 2,000 years ago in Daniel chapter 9. Remember the 70 weeks of years, 490 years have been decreed for you and your people. 483 of those years have already passed. There's one seven-year period left, and that is the Great Tribulation. But it will also be a time of the condemnation of unbelievers. God will pour out his wrath in the series of judgments, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. God will pour out his judgment on unbelievers. And by the way, that's why I am absolutely convinced Christians will not live during the tribulation. We will not be here for that period of time. Now, critics of the rapture say, oh, you're just trying to have a quick way to get out of this world so you don't have to suffer. No, that's not true at all. There is every guarantee that Christians are going to suffer in this world. Christians right now around the world are suffering. There's no promise to be exempt from suffering in the world. But the suffering the world, the Christians are experiencing right now is persecution from other people, from unbelievers. The tribulation, that seven-year period, will be the first time in history that the whole world since the flood, it will be the first time that the whole world has experienced God's judgment, his condemnation. And as a Christian, I never need to fear God's wrath or condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. God took all of the wrath that you and I deserve, and he poured it out on his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced the wrath of God so I could experience the blessing of God. And if I have to quake over the idea of some future judgment of God, then it means the death of Christ was totally unnecessary. No, no Christian needs to fear the coming wrath of God. That's the great tribulation. The tribulation will end when all the world forces gather together in the valley of Jezreel, the plain of Megiddo that so many of us have been to so many times. It's the battlefield that when Napoleon looked at it, he said, this is the greatest battlefield in history of any place in the world. It's that spot that the world forces will gather together to overthrow the Antichrist. That's why they assemble there. They're tired of the world calamity and the judgments against the world. They're going to blame him for it, and they're going to try to overthrow Antichrist. But suddenly, they're going to look into the sky and see something they never expected. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And the armies which are in heaven, verse 14, clothed in fine linen, were following him on white horses. That's you and me. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That's the second coming. The second coming of Christ is the visible return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. Now, as I said earlier, there are some similarities between this and the rapture, but there are some key differences. The rapture happens in secret. The only people who'll see the Lord in the air will be believers who are snatched up to meet him there. At the second coming, 
Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Everybody will see Jesus returning. During the rapture, we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But at the second coming, Jesus doesn't just come in the air. He comes to earth again. Zechariah tells us his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will be split in two. I'm telling you, when I go to Israel, next to the empty tomb where Christ conquered death forever, to me, the most exciting place to stand, as we will do, is that Mount of Olives to realize this is ground zero. This is where the Lord has promised to return one day. And why is he coming? to establish his kingdom, the millennium. Here's a definition for the millennium. It is the thousand-year period of time during which Christ will reign on the earth, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham and his believing descendants. God made a promise to believing Israel, not to national Israel, not to unconverted Jews, but to believing Israel. You don't get into the kingdom by being a Jew. You have to be a believing Jew or a believing Gentile. Even Paul said, not everybody who claims to be a Jew is a true Jew. It's those who believe and accept the Abrahamic covenant and believe in the Messiah. And there's a time when God's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham and his descendants of a land, a seed, and a blessing. The millennium, you say, oh, that term's never found in the Bible. Here it is again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. A thousand years. Millie, a thousand annum years. Six times in Revelation 20, you find the same phrase, a thousand years, a millennium. And he threw Satan into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. During the millennium, Jesus will be on the throne reigning from Jerusalem. Satan will be bound. And because of that, there will be a partial lifting of the curse on the world. This isn't the recreated earth. That's still future. This is a renovated earth. And it's the period Isaiah had in mind when he said, people will live longer now that Satan has been removed. Uh, death will be rarer. It won't be non-existent, but it will be more rare. The world will enjoy a time of blessing. Isaiah 11 talks about it as a time that he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. Verse 6, the wolf will lay down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid. In verse 9, they will not destroy or hurt in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This is the millennium. At the end of the millennium comes that sixth event known as the great white throne judgment. It is God's final judgment against all unbelievers who have ever lived. Where do unbelievers go when they die? Right now, they go to a place called Hades. It is a temporary place of intense suffering that Jesus described in Luke 16. But even though they're suffering right now, it's nothing compared to what awaits unbelievers. And at the great white throne judgment, the Bible says Hades will be emptied and all unbelievers will stand before God in judgment. Look at Revelation 20, verses 11 to 13. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 13, 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Will you notice the subjects of the judgment? These are all unbelievers, every one of them. Their name is not written in the book of life. Secondly, notice the basis for the judgment. Verse 13 says, they were judged according to their works. Why would they be judged by works? Because they said, we don't need to be judged by grace. We don't need Jesus' grace in our life. If there is a judgment, we'll just go by our works. They think their works will validate their entrance into heaven. But the Bible says when they see how short they have fallen compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then and only then will they understand why they deserve to be in hell. They're going to be judged by their works they were depending on, and every man will come up lacking. And what is the result of that judgment? Eternal condemnation. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that leads to the final period of time in Bible prophecy, eternity future. That is the permanent state of believers inhabiting the new heaven and earth and of unbelievers inhabiting the lake of fire. Once you die, it is too late to make any changes in your eternal destiny. It is a fixed destiny for both believers and unbelievers. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 10, about after this great white throne judgment, the present heaven and earth will be destroyed. And John says in Revelation 21, 1, it was at that point, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. John says, I saw a new city, the new Jerusalem. Right now, Jesus is in heaven building that new city. I call it the ultimate and prefab housing. It's being built up there. But John says he saw it come where? Down out of heaven to earth. The new Jerusalem is going to be our primary dwelling place for all eternity. It's not the only place. We'll zip around to other places. But it's going to be our main place. You know, somebody said, well, how is a city going to be big enough to include everybody. John saw the measurements of the city. In fact, he said in uh, Revelation 21, the size of this city is 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles wide. Now, that would be over 2 million square miles. Uh, Tuesday, I'm going up to New York City to uh, tape a special on prayer up there. We to think New York so big, 8 plus million people, it's only 305 square miles, the whole island of Manhattan, and yet it fits 8 to 10 million people. This is going to be over 2 million square miles on a plane. But it's not length and width. It's length, width, and height. This is a cube. It goes 1,500 miles high, these 2 million square miles. That is 660,000 stories high this city is going to be. People say, oh, well, he's speaking symbolically. John says in Revelation 21:17, these are human measurements. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? 
He knew some people would say that just can't be. He said, these are human measurements. It's going to be spectacular what God has planned for it. But you know what to me is even more exciting than what's going to be in the new heaven and new earth? It's what's not going to be there. You may have seen me Friday night on Fox talking about the hurricane and the anchor said, pastor, do you have any word of encouragement for people? I said, well, one thing I know for sure, hurricanes, death, and destruction were never a part of God's original plan for this world. And thank God they won't be a part of the next world he has planned for us. Isn't that what John said in Revelation 21.4? And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain, for the first things, the first world, will have passed away. That's the new heaven. That's the new earth God has planned for us. How do we respond to all of that? What should be our response? Three quick admonitions that come from Scripture. Number one, stay alert. Stay alert. It could happen at any moment. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. When Roman soldiers were about to break camp to go to another location, there were three blasts of the trumpet. The first blast was strike your tents, fold your tents up, get ready. Second blast of the trumpet, fall in line. And the last trumpet meant march away. The first trumpet has already sounded for us. God has said, fold up your tents, live as aliens. Don't put down roots too deeply. You're just passing through. The second trumpet has sounded, be alert, be sober. We're awaiting that final blast of the trumpet when we march away into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be alert, stay alert. Secondly, stay focused. You know, the great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19, composed a list of resolves that would guide his life. One of those was this, resolve not to do anything I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Now, that's wisdom. But there's an even more powerful corollary, and that is resolved that we should be doing whatever we would do if it were the last hour of our life. What should we be doing since time is short? In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. We need to spend whatever brief time we have left doing that one thing God left us here to do and that's to go into all the world and make disciples. Over the next few weeks, you're gonna see our plan, our church's plan over the next two years to do that one thing God left us to do. I think you're gonna be thrilled to see the plans that we have together to reach our city, our nation, and our world with the gospel. There's no better investment of your time and treasure than investing in the work of First Baptist Dallas because together we really are committed to transforming the world with God's word. Stay focused and finally, stay encouraged. For those of us who are believers, we have every reason to be encouraged and no reason to be fearful of the future. Do you remember Charles Dickens' work, A Christmas Carol? 
Ebenezer Scrooge was such a miserable human being. He lived a miserable life and he made everybody around him miserable. And remember when the ghost of Christmas future came, he showed Ebenezer Scrooge what the future looked like for everybody's life he had impacted in a negative way. And then he took him to the cemetery and showed him what his own future was. And Scrooge was devastated by what he saw. And he said, are these shadows of things that will be or simply shadows of things that might be? The end time events we've just looked at are not shadows of what might be. They're shadows of what will be. These are set in stone. These things are going to happen according to the authority of God's word. But God has given you and me the ability right now to make changes in our life that can change how those solid, set in concrete end time events affect us. Right now, we can examine whether or not we are truly saved or not. We can examine whether we're focused on the things of God or not. And how we change right now will impact our eternity forever. Again, the end time events are set. We're not going to change that. But how we respond right now will determine whether these events are a prelude to an eternity of blessing or a prelude to an eternity a nightmare like we've never known. As we come to the end of this study today, I thought Jesus' words in John 16, are a great capstone for this message. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And so will everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. In the end, that's what every Christian should know about the end times. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.